The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. It's a somber day here at the History of Literature podcast as we go through a period of grief, great sorrow, a not unexpected sadness, but a sadness nevertheless. But please don't worry, we are doing fine, and we will not be gloomy throughout the podcast because the sun is shining We've made it through August and into September, and that means that the heat and humidity of summer will crack soon, and we can all breathe more easily again. Fall is the season I look forward to most, even when it feels all too appropriate. It's a time for new beginnings, as school children know, and a time for saying goodbye to the summer, to the leaves on the trees, to another year, and sometimes to loved ones. Let's turn to literature now, not for its assistance with grief, although it is very good at that, but for a listener email and an opening up into a poem. Thank you for joining me and sticking with me. Dear listeners, we'll be back on our regular schedule soon. We'll start September with Ulysses and continue it with poets and spies. But first, a listener and Emily Dickinson today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, thanking you yet again for joining me. It's a good day not to be alone. And I'm not alone. I have listeners to thank for that. Kind-hearted listeners, some of the best people in the world. Ever since I've started this thing, this little podcast that could, seven years ago, I guess it was, the listeners, look, we've been lucky to be a success by lots of measures. We've been ranked at the top of lists. We've achieved millions of downloads. We're in that category of niche podcasts, I guess, but niche podcasts that are established. It's very humbling. Still a little surprised to be here. It wasn't always the case, though. When we started, you could fairly describe our listenership as paltry. (laughs) A handful, not millions, not large numbers. It was more like a few or, or maybe I could say a growing number. If by growing, one accepts that there were maybe a few dozen listeners a day for a year, seems like, and yet we persisted. Why? Why did I continue? Well, because I had failed at just about everything else, for one thing. So why not? Why not add this to the mix? (laughs) Long-term failure of a podcast. I had told myself a million listeners or bust. 50 a day, 30 a day, (laughs) we'd get there eventually. But even so, knowing me, I might have hung it up. Too many other ideas would jump in and demand my attention. Try me, try me, try new languages to learn. Try me, try me, new books to write, new musical instruments. A race against time to figure out some way to feel like I had done something with that time. Seems a little manic now. So I said, a million listeners are bust. I won't quit before then. We're not dropping this one until we can say that much at least. But secretly, between you and me... I might have talked myself out of that. Who knows? 10 listeners a day? 20 listeners a day? How long would you keep going? Well, what kept me going, even in those 
early days were listeners, listener emails in particular. Not the raw numbers I was seeing, but the kind of feedback I was getting. People who loved literature were reaching out to connect. People who were generous enough to tell me about their lives, about their listening experience, about their reading experiences. People who were encouraging, who were grateful. Anyone who puts something out in the world knows that the world often responds with a shrug or a rejection or words that are not so kind. Haters gonna hate. In this case, though, I was hearing from some of the smartest, most sensitive people one could imagine, and they were telling me to keep going. Not saying that specifically. Occasionally they would say that, but really it was not in that way. They didn't say keep going as if they were patting me on the head suggesting that, oh, you'll get better, or, oh, at least you're not harming anyone, they would say, please don't stop, or I hope you never stop, as if this was something they appreciated and maybe even needed. All that in those early days were like, I was like a little seedling looking back, a little podcaster seedling in the middle of a gale wind. Those emails were like a a hand being cupped around me. Keep growing, dear podcast. We need this plant to survive. That's how it felt anyway and how it feels looking back. Okay, enough about me and the podcast. People hate this stuff. <laughs> I don't know why I share it, but it's that kind of day, I guess, where I have to process a few things about life, of why I've been doing the things I'm doing, had some personal tragedies, which have put those at the forefront of my mind. i don't want to share too much because these are private people who are concerned and I want to respect their privacy. So anyway, I have to process a few things. So why not do it here, I guess, among friends? Sorry to impose. So let's take a quick break. And then we're going to hear one of those emails, a beautiful email from a listener in Canada, which has inspired a fresh look at a poem by Emily Dickinson. I think Emily Dickinson might be my favorite poet now, or at least she's one who never fails me. I recently reread some Jane Austen, getting ready for some upcoming shows, and she's another one. My guardian angels, Emily and Jane, and this listener too. Quick break, and then we'll return with our email from Ontario, who passes along some light verse and some Emily Dickinson. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. 
sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we're back. Subject, journey toward evening. Hi, Jack. It has been a while. Ontario calling Alice Monroe country. Let me just pause there. This is Jack. Let me just say that I have been to Ontario and Alice Monroe country, and I recently, as in a few days ago, got back from Montreal and Quebec City. Loved it. Canada is underrated. So this email was especially fun for me to receive. Let me start again at the beginning. It has been a while, Ontario calling, Alice Monroe country, and I certainly do not expect personalized replies because I cannot imagine what it takes to assemble two quality programs such as yours each week. I have been listening to it for years. I think I may have missed your 50th birthday. You may have had your 51st. I teared up to your reflection of your coming-of-age son. I will turn 70 in a few months, and as it nears, I find a peace moving in like a gentle breeze. I no longer wish to pretend or impress that I am younger than I am. I'm becoming stardust. I love the poet Phyllis McGinley. After all, she is a Pulitzer Prize winner, and her collection, Times Three, has an introduction by none other than W.H. Auden. Perhaps somewhat domestic, but always poignant. I wonder if Martha Stewart is a fan. She is forgotten because she wrote light verse, which is no longer popular. Light verse? Emily Dickinson, quote, A bird came down the walk he did not know I saw. He bit an angle worm in halves and ate the fellow raw. Anyway, here's the poem. Journey Toward Evening. Fifty. Not having expected to arrive here, makes a bad traveler, grows dull, complains, suspects the local wine, dislikes the service, is petulant on trains, and thinks the climate overestimated. Fifty is homesick, plagued by memories of more luxurious inns and expeditions, calls all lakes cold, all seas too tide beset, for fifty is no swimmer, nor moving inland, Likes the country more, believes the hills are full of snakes and brigands. The scenery is a bore, like the plump, camera-hung, and garrulous trippers whose company henceforward he must keep. Fifty writes letters, dines, yawns, goes up early, but not to sleep. He finds it hard to sleep. Thanks, Jack, and happy birthday. P.S. Played poker last evening with the grandchildren and had a blast. Well, thank you, Mary. Listener Mary, this is a nice poem. (laughs) The Phyllis McGinley poem is a nice poem, and no, I don't think Martha Stewart is a fan, if I'm betting on it, but only because Martha Stewart does not strike me as someone who has too much time for poetry. But I am such a person, as you know, and I appreciate light verse, so thank you for passing this one along. I will say that, much as I enjoyed the poem, I took at least as much pleasure in your final line, P. 
P.S. played poker last evening with the grandchildren and had a blast. It's good to be alive. Emily Dickinson is the gift that never stops giving. Her mind, she found a form that, that let her mind hop, jump, leap, soar. Watching her mind move through a poem is breathtaking. I just now was flooded with a million memories all at once. Does this happen to you? Where all your memories come pouring into your mind like a, a deck of cards being thrown into the air, except inside your head. And I, I saw the circus performer that I had just seen in the square of Notre Dame in Montreal, rolling around in a giant metal hula hoop, and the crowd that was there too, watching him in the crowds of the Piazza Navona. In Rome, in the hotels we stayed in, stayed at in Montreal and in Rome, in the inside of the Vatican. I saw that. And the zip line that my boys and I just did across the Montmorency Falls. And my attempts to learn German and my attempts to learn Chinese with the flashcards sitting in the tea house in Taiwan, hours with me and those characters and my pile of books on the floor in my apartment with my mattress also on the floor of my bedroom in that apartment with no hot water temporarily. And my landlord who said, well, personally, I always enjoy a nice cold shower. Dot, 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 waiting for me to say, I guess, okay then, never mind, no need to come and fix it. And instead, I was so flabbergasted, couldn't say a word. I was thinking to myself, this is about the last thing in the world that someone would want to hear a landlord say. Is that the worst thing a landlord might offer up? I like a nice cold shower. And he... Finally said, okay, I'll send someone over to take a look. All that was in my mind in a second. All that and more. It would take me a year to write it all down, probably. And why am I telling you this? Because my mind moves like this, but I can't capture that feeling in a poem. Not one that anyone would want to read. It's just a jumble of images and memories and ideas and thoughts, and it makes no sense. But reading Emily Dickinson, I feel like her mind maybe worked like that too. But she had the genius that could bottle up that lightning and transform it into something special. Mold it, shape it, shape that lightning into a lantern of sorts. And you can see the flashes when you go from poem to poem, how inventive and sly and supple her intelligence was. A bird came down the walk. He did not know I saw. He bit an angleworm in halves and ate the fellow raw. <laughs> yes, Mary, that is light verse, laugh out loud funny, but also with a kind of darkness, a kind of deep and dark humor. He bit an angleworm in halves and ate the fellow raw. It ate the fellow, comma, raw something very natural about that process. Of course, birds eat worms. It's a circle of life. It's the food chain, survival of the fittest, and so on. It's nature. It's part of nature. But to turn the worm into a fellow, to use that word, fellow, for the worm, and then to say raw, to conclude the rhyme with raw, it's kind of suddenly fellow, that word has turned the worm into a, a living creature, not just a thing. Personified a bit, not just food stuff, but a fellow. A fellow with a single chance at life. One go-round, he's there minding his own business the way a fellow does. 
not a worm or vermin or a pest or an ugly, squiggly creature, a fellow, as if he's got his own little thing going on. I'm, I'm not picturing him with a, a monocle and a top hat and a cane or anything, but I'm not not doing that either. Good walking stick for this fellow. Usually the word fellow calls up something like that, doesn't it? Well-dressed, well-groomed, bit of a dandy, out to take a stroll and enjoy the sunshine and maybe encounter a few friends. Whoa, hang on. Here's a bird, a sneaky bird, who thinks he's alone, doesn't realize he's being watched. The bird can let its savage streak emerge under cover of anonymity. It's raw hunger. And he tears into this good man, this fellow, eats him raw. And what kind of a fate is that for an unsuspecting fellow? Bit in half and eaten raw. Who goes out and expects to be bitten in halves and eaten raw? What kind of fate is that for a fellow? For us, watching this, it's funny. It's like a coyote pursuing the roadrunner off a cliff. The coyote with his elaborate schemes on roller skates with a rocket strapped to his back, maybe, or firing himself forward with a giant slingshot made by the Acme Company. It's hard not to laugh out of empathy at the coyote's fate. He's trying so hard and it goes so wrong. Well, that's like this worm too. The worm I didn't care about before and now I do. Now I see his world, this fellow's world, and I chuckle at it, how stark it is. And I wonder, what is Emily going to do now? Is that it? The poem doesn't end there. She going to leave the the bird and the worm behind and talk about other things? Well, no, she's not done with the idea and she's not done with me and I'm not done with the poem. So let's take our last break and then we will dive in to this poem. We'll see where she got. This isn't one of her most famous poems. I'm guessing it might be new for most of you. But Emily's poems are worthwhile, even the deep tracks. You don't just want the greatest hits with her. You want the albums, so you can listen to the whole album. And then you want the bootlegs and the outtakes, too. When a lesser artist takes a crack at glory, a hit or two might be enough. When genius is involved, we want it all. The full poem and the analysis after this. Okay, we are back. I'm working through some personal pain, and a listener email from Mary has brightened my day. Thank you, Mary. Mary gave us the first few lines from an Emily Dickinson poem that made me laugh out loud. A bird came down the walk he did not know I saw. He bit an angle worm in halves and ate the fellow raw. Wow, does that word raw land, doesn't it? It's the rhyme so unexpected and so satisfying. Nabokov gets a lot of credit for his picnic, comma, lightning parenthetical, and deservedly so, but this is nearly as economical. Let's take a look at the rest of the poem, but before we do that, what do you think this poem will be about? If you heard that as the first four lines, you think it would be about nature and how unfair and unforgiving it can be? Death comes for all of us when we least expect it. Well, maybe. That might be my guess. If I were writing the poem, maybe that's where I would head. Logical, explanatory, and let's face it, 
a little predictable and dull. But then again, as Emily said to Susan Gilbert, her first and most enduring love, we're the only poets and everyone else is prose. Not prose writers, prose. What does that tell you about poetry and being a poet, being in love, feeling things, being intelligent, feeling that too, being creative with a wild and fearless mind, an open heart and a brilliant mind. That's poetry. Plotting along, checking the boxes, marching through ideas. That's prose. Okay, let's hear the poem. First stanza. A Bird Came Down the Walk by Emily Dickinson. First stanza. A bird came down the walk. He did not know I saw. He bit an angleworm in halves and ate the fellow raw. That's our first stanza. But now that's familiar to you, right? I've read it three or four times. Will we lament the loss of life in our poor fellow in the next stanza? Or do we stick to the unsuspecting bird? Or does the observer turn around and look at something else? Well, here's the next stanza. And then he drank a dew from a convenient grass and then hopped sidewise to the wall to let a beetle pass. We're with the bird. We are in a microcosmic world. What a marvelous string of observations. The dew was there for drinking. We are looking very close at this nature scene. The grass was there convenient for the bird. We're zeroed in on the bird now, his movements, his world, the world where you see a worm, bite that fellow in half, eat him uncooked, then, whoa, grass blade. How lucky, how convenient. Still got some dew on it. Good for drinking. Ah, that hits the spot after a raw worm. Dew for drinking, well, a dew drop, that's not much for you and me. But if you have a tiny beak like a bird, a dew drop is, is like getting a big, a big pitcher of lemonade on the back porch. Just the thing. And oh, our savage bird, the worm eater, the predator, the killer, has some manners and politeness. He will hop sidewise to the wall. Not an easy effort. Not necessary. Not a nothing. Not an instinct or a reflexive action. But deliberate, intentional. And why? To let a beetle pass. Don't worry, beetle. I'm no longer hungry. Please pass by, kind sir. You can almost imagine the bird with a nice little flourish, tip of the cap. I know we creatures out here occasionally have to eat one another. Well, such is life. But truly, when hunger is quelled and thirst is slaked, I can be quite an accommodating sort of bird. I'll hop sideways and let you go on your merry way, good fellow. My best to you and your... to me. My best to you and Mrs. Beetle. We only have three stanzas to go. We've done two. Three left. Where is this headed? Back to the worm? Where do you think? Here's stanza number three. He glanced with rapid eyes that hurried all abroad. They looked like frightened beads, I thought. He stirred his velvet head. Oh, boy. The predator has detected the poet, not knowing that she's a poet, not recognizing her as such, as an observer, but as one belonging to a species of predator, a human. A human, like all humans, 
This bird knows humans who kill for food and sometimes for fun. Sport, we call it. And kids throw rocks at birds because they can be cruel. We humans are threats. Sometimes it's because we're cruel and sometimes it's because we're casual. The bird knows this. His glances with rapid eyes, they look like frightened beads. His velvet head stirs. Look at the transition this bird has made in the span of a few dozen words. He came down the walk, unsuspecting. He pounced on a worm, cut it in half, ate it raw. Then he drank dew. Then he hopped out of the way to let a beetle pass by. All of this, all in the day of, in the, all in the, all in the day's work for a bird who has landed on this little patch of soil, this walk, this place where birds and worms and humans come together. They intersect here. Birds descend, worms emerge from below, and humans are there to watch and threaten or be kind. That's the nature of a bird, right? Kill and and be kind. We've seen that in the poem already, and it's our nature too. Our human nature. Next stanza. Like one in danger, cautious, I offered him a crumb, and he unrolled his feathers and rode him softer home. Boy, that stanza, that surprise takes my breath away when he unrolls his feathers and and takes off into flight, just as it, it takes my breath away, just as it always does. I always catch my breath when a bird suddenly flies up before me and lifts into the sky. I'm sure that's happened to you too. Wings flapping, sudden movement, Something from my feet to right in front of my face to somewhere above my head. You've been startled by birds like this, I'm sure. But I say, wings flapping because I'm pros. Emily says, unrolled his feathers and rode him softer home because she is poetry. Rode. Those flapping wings are as comfortable in the air as oars in the water. And look at that word choice. Grammar has broken down. Because a superior version of language, superior to grammar, has replaced it. There are two grammatical mistakes in these four short lines. What is it? 16, 20 words at the most. And there's two grammatical mistakes by a champion poet. Well, I don't mean they're mistakes. They're two willful subversions of grammar rules. The first one comes in the first two lines. Like one in danger, cautious, I offered him a crumb. Who's in danger? Who's cautious? If I read the poem out loud to you, you will think that it's the bird. That's how I read it anyway, grammatically, though it's the poet. Listen to this. I'll read it and listen to the meaning. This comes from the last stanza, flowing into this one. He glanced with rapid eyes that hurried all abroad. They looked like frightened beads, I thought. He stirred his velvet head like one in danger, cautious. I offered him a crumb. That's how the lines read to me, right? The bird is the one with the rapid eyes that hurry, that look like frightened beads. The bird is the one with the velvet head stirring, like one in danger, cautious. All that is the bird. That's if we put a comma. That's not how it is. Not in the punctuation in the version of the poem I'm reading. Some editors do it differently. But when I read it that way, I'm 
I'm going against the punctuation that's in the poem. If we put a comma after velvet head in a period after cautious, that's how you read it. He stirred his velvet head, comma, like one in danger, comma, cautious, period, breath. I offered him a crumb. But the actual punctuation is that there's a period after head, which is so counterintuitive that many editors just leave that out. That must be, must be a mistake, they think. We want the bird with the frightened beads for eyes to be the one who's in danger and cautious, or like one in danger and cautious. But why should that be so? You see what I'm saying here? Like one in danger. The actual poem is like one in danger, comma, cautious, comma, I offered him a crumb. That means I is the one who's in danger, like one in danger and cautious. Not the bird, the one offering the crumb. We think it must be the bird, the one who's got his head on a swivel, looking around, eyes darting. But why should it be the case that that's the that's the one who's in danger and cautious. Why not the poet who's offering the crumb? Offering with humility. Maybe a trembling hand. Maybe with, if not quite, fear. Then anyway, caution. Will this bird accept our crumb? We're not afraid that the bird will eat us, as it did the worm, of course. But the bird might fly at us. That unpleasant surprise. And it might peck at us. Might go for our eyes our vulnerable flesh, or it might just move suddenly or sometimes our caution about wanting not to disturb. We know we don't speak bird language. We can't say, don't worry, bird, I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to give you this crumb. I hope you don't misinterpret my gesture. I hope you see that it's kindness and generosity, not anger and hostility and violence. It's not an attack. I kind of like the reading where the poet might be the one who's cautious to the point of acting like one in danger. But guess what? We don't have to choose. We can have both. We can have a read. This is what literature does so well. We can have both of these things be true at once. We don't have to decide. We can live with both interpretations and let them meld together. Like It's like Schrodinger's cat, except we're not killing anything. By observing, we're bringing it to life, to beautiful, complex life, and we're letting life tremble in that world we humans are so good at, which we resist all the time because we want simplicity and the universe is complicated, and that's frightening. So we try to boil things down and nail down meanings and fix butterflies to the wall when really butterflies can and should flit and float and fleetly flee and fly. Speaking of which, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Go with whatever punctuation you want for that first part. I like both interpretations, and I especially like interpretations that allow for both those things to be true at once. Okay, second grammatical mistake. Again, I need to use a different word from mistake. Second grammatical subversion. This is Emily hopping sideways around a grammatical rule. It comes in that line the beautiful line, the last two lines, and he unrolled his feathers and rode him softer home. Rode softer. Not rode him softly home, not rode softly home, 
Rowed is R-O-W-E-D, by the way, rowing, like the rowing of oars. Rowed him softer home. Softer. Why so Why not softly? Because it's not softly. It's softer. Softer than what? Softer than what? Softer than soft. Softer than what you'd expect for a journey. Surprisingly soft. It's softer. It's not just soft. Softer. There's a great player from the Negro Baseball Leagues, historical player. Look him up sometime. His name is Cool Papa Bell. What a great name, too. Cool Papa, who may have been the fastest human who has ever lived. He was clocked running the bases in 12 seconds flat, which is a full second faster than anyone else has ever been clocked. The stories about him were legendary about his speed. He put down a sacrifice bunt along the third base line, and the pitcher tagged him out, sliding into third. Here's how fast he was. They said he he could turn out the lights and be under the covers before the lights actually turned off. <laughs> I tried to do that a few times when I was a kid, but uh, I think that was, was probably a little bit mythic. But here's one that was true. Jesse Owens, you know Jesse Owens, after the Olympian, after Jesse Owens returned from winning four gold medals in the Berlin Olympics, he made his living barnstorming around. He said, you can't eat four gold medals. And he was living in a, a racist. He returned to a racist society that wasn't making him, wasn't allowing him to earn a living in much other way. So he made his living barnstorming around the country, racing against, going from town to town, where he would race against the town's fastest person. Sometimes he'd give that person a big head start and he would win anyway. He was Jesse Owens. Sometimes he'd he'd run, he'd jump hurdles while the other guy just ran straight and Owens would win. Sometimes he'd run against horses and win those races too. He refused to race Cool Papa Bell. Everyone wanted him to race Cool Papa. Jesse Owens said, not a chance. When you're a hero and a legend, like Jesse Owens, you don't take on an unwinnable race. No one, not even the four-time gold medalist who won his races in front of Hitler was as fast as Cool Papa Bell, let alone faster. Anyway, Buck Owens, the great ambassador of the Negro Leagues, had a, had a great response when people would, they'd want to ask him about these players, Josh Gibson and Satchel Paige and Cool Papa Bell, and people would say to Buck Owens, how fast was Cool Papa Bell? And he would say, before the question was even done, he'd say, faster than that. How soft did that bird row himself home? Softer. Softer than what? Softer than that. Let's hear the conclusion of this poem. We only have one stanza left. Where's it going to take us? I'll read the last two stanzas together. Like one in danger... Cautious, I offered him a crumb, and he unrolled his feathers and rowed him softer home. Then oars divide the ocean, two silver for a seam, or butterflies off banks of noon leap plashless as they swim. Look at where we are now at the end of this poem. The air is swimming before us. The air has turned into water. And creatures with the ability to fly, birds and butterflies, aren't thrashing around, flying like drowning creatures. 
this is this is their medium. They're comfortable there. They're comfortable in this medium. It supports them as water supports us. Jump up into the air sometime. Do it now. I'll wait. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> if you're somewhere where you can jump, jump. And see how long you can stay in the air. You will feel just how heavy you are. Now, slide into the water. Slide slide into the ocean. The sea water. Salt water. You're weightless, right? That's the feeling. Well, these birds and butterflies get to experience air as if it's water. That's how it looks to our poet anyway. They aren't churning away. Chopping at the air, they're rowing softer, as smoothly as a boat being rowed through a sea so gentle that it leaves no trace. Too silver for a seam. How perfect is that? Those words, silver, smooth, silver is gorgeous, silver is sleek, it slips right through with no friction. It's like a beam of moonlight. It doesn't push water to one side or another, and butterflies are the same. They make no splash. They are splashless. Or in her word, splashless. It's a better word. Surprising. And it lets us not trip over the consonants. We have a near rhyme to conclude. Seam resolves in swim. It's like chords resolving, musical chords, but not neat, predictable ones. Not in a pattern that any old person could write, but satisfying nevertheless. The chords resolve with resonance. The rhymes resolve with resonance. It's like the end of a Beatles song. I'll pick one. Lots of them I could pick, but I'll pick the chord at the end of She Loves You. It's not the standard choice. George Martin said, I don't know, boys, you're not singing the right chord or you're singing it wrong. It sounds like a mistake. And the boys, the young geniuses said, that chord makes the whole song. We're not changing it. They were right. Seam goes to swim and that she loves you ends with that chord. Here's the other pattern. Then Emily is breaking up in her final line. Those lines, the first three lines in that stanza have two pairs, and they are dominant. Each of the first three gives us a pair like that. Oars and ocean. O and O. Silver and seam. And butterflies and banks. And then leap flashless as they swim. The more obvious choice there is leap splashless as they swim. But leap splashless is a little more of a hurdle to overcome, isn't it? Leap, p, spl. That's four consonants when the tongue wants to keep moving. Try saying this sometime. P, spl. Now try saying this. P, pl. Which is more like a butterfly? P, spl. Or which is more like a butterfly moving swiftly, dancing about, moving without disturbing the air, moving without a splash. This isn't a frog with a kerplunk. This is pa-pa-pla-pla-pla. That's how butterflies move, right? Leap-plashless. 
leave plashless. Leave plashless. And so we're denied that final pairing. Swim does not combine with splash because we have plash. This is the line that doesn't follow the pattern. And yet it resolves with resonance. I can feel Emily Dickinson's pride in that dropping of the S using plashless instead of splashless. Splashless. Just like there's no s in a butterfly. <laughs> That's, you know, they whisper, they pop, pop, pop. That's their wings. I hear her pride, just like I hear the pride in these lads from Liverpool singing their heads off. A B, a D, and an E close together, sung like three voices bursting out of a single body. The tightness of the harmonies here. Let's just, let's hear it again, but this time. We'll just isolate the voices. And thus, the poem concludes. What do we make of this poem? It's not about the fellow who was eaten raw, is it? It was He's dropped after the first stanza. We don't see the worm again. It's about the bird, the predator, the walker, the hopper, the flyer. The poem was not about the worm, or was it? What is this poem about? The bird doesn't do much either after the first two stanzas. It does bird-like things, where it's eating and hopping. It has a kind of personality, lets the beetle go by, that's kind. And then it becomes a little bit endangered, possibly frightened by the poet, and then it flies home. Like a swift boat that divides the ocean with no seam. It's just a bird doing bird-like thing, bird -like things. And Emily is there to offer a crumb and observe. And observe in a childlike way. That's often commented upon. Her childlike wonder, her childlike observations. What is that getting at? What are they talking about? Childlike think I have an idea. But where's our worm? Where's our worm in this poem? Our worm has lost its life. That's the start of the poem. A death, an ending, a poor fellow who is no more. And then we see life in this zoomed-in way, the way you hardly ever notice, nothing unusual happening, but it's miracle after miracle nevertheless. It's miracles all the way down. The miracles of the mundane, because being alive affords us this. If we're lucky enough to be alive and lucky enough to notice these miracles, a bird hopping sidewise is a miracle. Hopping to let a beetle pass is another miracle. Drinking from dew, beaded onto a blade of grass, that's a miracle too. Convenient blade of grass. There it is, so close, bending a little in my direction. There are a million miracles around us every millisecond, and there have been for as long as we've been here. My child, I think I've told the story before, but it's one of my favorites. It's worth repeating, I think. My child came home from kindergarten one day, and he said, Sylvia had some sad news. Her dog died last weekend. But the good news was, she lost a tooth. Of course, I laughed at the mind of a child where a lost tooth for a kindergartner, probably the first one that Sylvia had lost. It's so exciting, so miraculous. Maybe she was a little afraid when it was wiggling 
And then it came out. A miracle. That was good news. The whole class saw the logic in that. Grown-ups will laugh. The dog dying is very sad, but the children see how lucky it was for Sylvia that she lost a tooth this weekend. That must have cushioned the blow. Good news like that. The worm has fallen. The poor fellow is no more. But here's a blade of grass bending in my direction, conveniently. The worm has fallen. The poor fellow is no more. The fate that awaits all of us, all living things, poets as well as parents. And it's a loss every time. Crushing. A tragedy every time. But it frames the world too. Death is what gives life its power. Those miracles for those lucky enough to be alive. Those miracles for those lucky enough to be able to see them and recognize them as miracles. Those are still there. That's the childlike power. That's the childlike wonder, the lyric power of Emily Dickinson to remind us of these miracles. Let's recognize their beauty and their power. Let's use language to appreciate them, the language and vision that lets us see how gorgeous a bird is when it unrolls its feathers and rows softer home. We'll all be rowing softer home. That's our fate. And hopefully it's with that kind of beauty and grace and dignity Let's hope we recognize life for all its dazzling, incredible gifts. Let's be as plashless as the butterfly, leaping from the banks of noon. Let's remember that we are fortunate to be surrounded by miracles and to be part of the miracle ourselves for as long as we're here. Okay. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to listener Mary for giving us the gateway into this poem. Good luck with those grandchildren, Mary, in those hot poker games up in Ontario. And my thanks to Emily Dickinson, my eternal thanks. Limitless I am in my appreciation for her and her poetry. I'm glad to honor her in my prose-like way. And my thanks to all of you, dear listeners. This was a comfort, a welcome hour. Was it an hour, 45 minutes with you? I hope you enjoyed it as well. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.